The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to this What's Working in Washington Extra. We're going to talk about a special topic today, something that's very important in current events and for many of our businesses and careers, and that is trying to understand what leadership actually is. Many of us think we know when we see it or believe that there's a special formula for describing what leadership is. Well, all of us know that leadership is a trait that our society values, and it's often the missing link in building a successful business, career, or life. Our guest in the studio is a renowned leader who, over his career in the Army and now is the head of the McChrystal Group, a top-tier leadership consulting company based in our region, has come to some surprising conclusions on leadership. His new book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, challenges many existing stereotypes of leadership, and I found it tremendously useful. So I asked General Stanley McChrystal, one of the co-authors of this book, to come into the studio and talk about leadership and society with me today. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure. We've, we've talked in the past along the way and mm-hmm. through this life journey you have around leadership. Let's start with this. When people talk about leadership in our society, how, how are they describing it? Well, I think most people think of leadership as the ability of one person or an organization to influence other people to do something. And that's kind of simplistic. People argue over exact definitions, but that kind of comes down to there. And I believed that for an awful long time. I thought it was something you had or you didn't or you learned or you didn't. Now I'm in a very different place. I now think that leadership is actually an emergent property that comes from the interaction of leaders and followers and then contextual uh, factors in any environment at any time. And so it's almost like a chemical reaction of what comes out of that. What that means is the leader doesn't have a bag of leadership and they reach in and they throw some at you. It's not a club that you beat people with. And it's not something you can automatically create. You you have to get the right dynamics at the moment to get the amount of or the, the kind of leadership you want out of it. It's very organic. Interesting. So there's not a there's not a leadership arrow I can shoot at somebody. But yet when you talk with people, they really do get us you really do get the sense when you talk with people generally, they really do think leadership is something that comes from above or why do you think that is? Why are people so confused about leadership? It's simple to put your mind around. Think of trying to get a complicated physics idea that Albert Einstein would have done one of his famous thought experiments on. And you try to get your mind around it so you draw analogies, the trampoline and the bowling ball or, or whatever it is you're trying to do. We simplify leadership so we can get our mind around it. And we simplify our understanding of leaders so that it makes sense. We call it mythology in our book or three major myths. But I go back to when I was a child. I loved to read mythology. My mother was very uh, fascinated by it. And there was one where you have a picture of Atlas holding up the sky. And the thing that was amazing about it is for hundreds and hundreds of years, people accepted the idea that if the sky stayed up, somebody must be holding it. Mm -hmm. So it was a very simple, understandable explanation. So we use leaders as a simple, understandable explanation for why things happen or don't happen, why we succeed or why we fail. And as a consequence, 
We've simplified what leadership is. We put unrealistic expectation on leaders. We select with a skewed view. We elect, we support, and we pay a great cost for that. It's very interesting to me because if you had asked me, I would have said that leadership and the way people look at leadership is a product of how they're socialized. But I, what I'm hearing you suggest is that it's really much more the human condition. It's very much a human condition. And leadership is as much in the followers as it is in the leaders, how the followers respond, because they empower the leader. Absent mm -hmm. followers, the leader is, who knows? But the followers respond to the leader and they give reality to that leadership, that emergent property. And so the followers have much more control, much more agency, much more responsibility than we often admit. It's interesting. Uh, to me, when I talk about leadership, say, with my MBA students, what I often suggest to them is that if you want to understand leadership, go to a comedy club and watch the group dynamic. What do you think about that? I think that's very true. We, uh, we went down and talked to President George W. Bush, and we talked about that famous moment when he stood on the pile of rubble at the 9-11 site and he talked through the megaphone to the crowd. And he described it, he says, I got there, and it was only a couple days after the attack. There was anger, there was a desire for revenge, almost an animal atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so as he talks, he, he stands up there, it wasn't planned, and they give him a megaphone and he starts to talk, and he's not connected. Everybody's just talking to each other and almost ignoring him. And then somebody yells out, hey, George, we can't hear you. And he responds, I can hear you. And then suddenly a connection was made with the crowd. Everybody paid attention. There was now a two-way tra transaction or interaction going on. And he started, and pretty soon everyone, who the people who did this will hear from all of us. And then it became this magic moment. But he described to me, he says, completely unplanned. And it wasn't until they responded and he responded that some kind of connection was made and then you're off then leadership existed. So leadership emerges from below. Leadership occurs when there is a, a connection. Now let's turn to this, your book and bring that in the conversation. And leaders, you use the device of describing, you, you juxtapose two different types of people within a category, say genius, entrepreneur, power broker, and so forth. Why did you approach learning about leadership, describing leadership in that way? Well, we wanted to get different kinds of personalities. So we wanted diversity of sex, nationality, background, area in which they worked. And then we decided for the genres, power brokers, reformers, and whatnot, to put them together that way because that's the way we had to sort of identify them. We society, we've got heroes. We've got a famous Chinese admiral named Zhang Ha. And then we've got Harriet Tubman. Not because everything they did was perfect or in some cases even real, but because they had become heroic icons. They've become symbols. We had power brokers. We had Margaret Thatcher and Boss Tweed because they had grown up in political systems, Tammany Hall and, and uh, the British Conservative Party, and they had been able to grow, take opportunities, and become leaders in that system. So instead of being politicians, they had dealt in power. They identified with that. So we, we looked at these pairs that way so that we could not judge them as leaders, but identify why did they emerge as leaders? What caused that to happen? What did they do? What were the contextual factors that caused that? We're here talking with General Stan McChrystal about his new book, Leaders and Leadership Generally. When we come back after the break, 
We're going to talk about the most interesting leader he's learned about during his career. So we'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is the leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. And we're back in What's Working Washington Extra. I'm here with General Stan McChrystal talking about leadership. Stan, before the break, I promised everybody, and I guess I put a little bit on the spot, you've looked at so many different leaders over years. You, you advise different companies around how to grow their own leadership style. Who's the most interesting leader you've met or learned about during your career? And what made them so interesting and important to you? Well, I've been lucky to be around a lot of pretty interesting leaders. The one that jumps out to me now is probably unexpectedly Coco Chanel. And Coco Chanel, born in 19th century France, became an orphan at a young age. She goes into a convent. She becomes a seamstress. And then when she's old enough, she's opportunistic. She goes out, she sings in local clubs, and she becomes a courtesan, uh, essentially a highly paid prostitute of, of sorts. But she, she starts to take her opportunities and she identifies that fashion is at a period when it can't be sustained. Women are wearing heavy clothes, they're corseted in, it's expensive, it's impractical. And as you got toward the beginning of the First World War, the expense of that was a big problem. And also there was a nascent beginning of the women's liberation movement as more women entered the workforce. So as a consequence, she sees all these factors. She decides it's the time is right for a change. But it's hard at that time for a female to break into business. She gets some help from a male friend, some advice and some financing. But then she does something brilliant. She becomes the brand. She starts to change. And what she does is she becomes almost her own mannequin. She wears clothes that are more liberating they are attractive to people. They're more vibrant. She goes after materials that are different and then she wears them and lives a lifestyle. And what she does is she entices a whole generation of women, be like Coco, live my life, wear my clothes. Mm -hmm. And later after Chanel number no. five is created, wear my fragrance. It was a fascinating way. She was in advertisements, she uh, she lived a lifestyle that was alluring to people as well. So she essentially becomes not only the business mastermind, the fashion designer, but also her own marketing movement. And it's an extraordinary branding at a time, probably a hundred years before we use that word all the time. That's a theme that very much comes through as a, so that vignette for Coco Chanel's and leaders and their others as well. It seems that a very recurrent theme is that leaders either intentionally or unintentionally become myth makers. They do, and it's funny because in some ways you can understand why they do it. They build their own myth up. They become more admirable in people's eyes. They become more powerful than they might really be. They do all of those things which increase their sellability or their political power or whatever. 
at the same time, we buy it. We, the followers, we, the public, because we want to buy it. We want to believe there are people stronger, taller, smarter that can deliver what we want. And it's very dangerous mm. because we develop unrealistic expectations of those leaders. Then we're disappointed when they can't live up to it. And the leaders, I would argue, in some cases, create unrealistic expectations for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then when they turn out to be simply human and able of only to do a certain amount, then we're very disappointed. And is this where the feedback loop that we were discussing in the first segment comes into play? I, I've known, and I know you have as well, some supremely arrogant people who really believe that they, in fact, are mythical centaurs. I mean, they, they just do. But they're terrible leaders. So what is it about uh, these mythical figures that makes them effective leaders? How do, how do we close loop on this? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because, in fact, we have a feedback loop that tells people they're powerful and they're handsome or they're beautiful and, and, and effective and all those things. They start to believe it. And then there's a certain arrogance or self-confidence on steroids that come up. Mm-hmm. And so people are enticed to believe it. They're reinforced to believe it. If they show a lot of self-confidence, we see this in movies and we see it in real life, then we assume they must be effective and powerful because they act as though they don't have a doubt in the world. Whereas someone who's more tentative, more introspective, more self-doubting, we assume they must not be that good because they don't think they're that good. But that reveals something that I find fascinating. We have a cult of extroversion in our society when we look at leaders. But as Susan Cain wrote in her book, Quiet, and other people pointed out, introversion is incredibly important in an organization. Some of the most successful leaders I have known are not particularly comfortable in front of crowds. You've got examples in your book and in your life. How do you coach somebody whose winning strategy in life is data-driven, quiet, confident leadership, how to succeed in a world where many of us associate leadership with myth-building, arm-waving, and just brass bands. Well, that's right. I mean, we think about the leader who walks into the room and they're just supremely confident. They're, they can make small talk. They can work the room. They look people in the eye and they just seem to bring energy. Bill Clinton was famous for that. And then we think of the people who are more awkward I have found that the best leaders who are introverted, and I'm off the charts introverted, but I don't claim to be one of the best leaders, you develop a coping mechanism. What I have done for years is have people around me. I attract people. I seek to be partnered with people who fill in those gaps. My wife is very good for that, but when she's next to me, I'm a little bit better. I operate with other people who are a little more extroverted than I am. I may bring some strengths to it, but I realize when I'm part of a team, I'm far better. And so I don't pretend differently. Mm. I find out that if I'm alone and I'm operating through social environments, I'm pretty dismal. So you're definitely a a advocate for the cliche that A players hire A people and B and C players hire mediocrity. I think that's true, but I think I'm also a believer in the yin and the yang. Mm. And that is you, you hang around people, hopefully, who fill in things about you that might be weaker instead of just finding someone exactly like me so we have two two stands. What we really need is a stand and somebody who's all that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Last thought before we uh, take another break. Your last book, the book that influenced me, was Team of Teams, where you really talked about delegation authority and servant leadership. How does this new book, Leaders, and 
How are you feeling about leadership? What's changed in your mindset from uh, when you wrote Team of Teams? I had not thought about this when we wrote Team of Teams, but it actually is part of the natural journey towards it. Because if you think of Team of Teams, it's important that the organization collaborate. It's important that the pieces fit together. When we talked about the leader in Team of Teams, we talked about them becoming the gardener. They create and nurture an ecosystem in which the, oper the organization operates well. It's a less egocentric kind of leadership. It's giving up a little of the overt power for indirect shaping capability. What we find here in this book is, as we go forward, that is a reality. People interact with followers, so that ability to shape and that constant interaction to produce what we call the emergent property of leadership is much more effective than the idea that I ride in on the white horse and I point my leadership gun at people and I, I anoint them with leadership. So I think it's a natural movement in the direction that unconsciously we've been uh, pursuing for a long time. Well, so far what I've learned from you is I'm not gonna be able to get a white horse. I, I can't get leadership fairy dust. But yeah, we're going to push on. I'm here with General Stan McChrystal at the break. We've talked a lot about leadership emerging. We're now going to talk about the responsibility that people, citizens have to make sure that we have good leaders. We'll be talking about that right when we come back. Thank you to Speakerbox Communications. Speakerbox is your team for meeting the unique demands of the technology sector, crystallizing complex ideas, targeting highly intelligent buyers, and moving at the speed of tech. Since 1997, they've given voice to many of our industry's top thinkers and performers. Check them out at speakerboxpr.com. And thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars in revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. And we're back with What's Working in Washington Next Year. I'm here with General Stan McChrystal talking about leadership in his new book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality. I know that over the years, you've done a lot of work to really try to encourage national service and just getting citizens participating in democracy and having a stake in the game. How does that dovetail with this concept of emergent leadership? I mean, do we ultimately in society have a responsibility for the leaders that we get? Complete responsibility. If you think about it, we elect, we select, we support, we, we do all the things that lets a leader be a leader. But the bottom line, without being trite, we need to all be leaders. If we think about what a nation is, it's simply an agreement between a bunch of people to form a nation. I mean, the gods didn't come down and decide the United States of America. We did. Mm -hmm. And we said that we will band together and we'll each get certain rights, benefits from that, and we'll have certain associated responsibilities. Our leadership now needs to come from stepping up and living up to the citizenship, which means we need to lead each other. We need to do the things that make society better. We need to be parts of government. We need to be parts of our defense, our policing. We need to do things volunteer in communities that simply represent, I will do something that needs to get done. Almost who will bell the cat? All right, I'll do it. And when someone steps forward, that's a kind of example leadership. The chance for everyone to have an experience of doing service for a part of their life changes their psyche. It changes their sense of what my responsibility is 
people who served during the Second World War became known as the greatest generation. I would argue not for what they did in uniform, but what they did afterward because they had become, uh, they had a habit of serving, of feeling responsible for what happened in the country. I think we need to recapture that. And I think we need to give every young person that opportunity to build up that experience inside them. So as we bring together your experience over the last number of years since you you left the Army, it seems to me like you're creating a, an overall paradigm where uh, leaders emerge, leaders are myth makers, but leaders have to be attached and, and connected to those that follow. And those that follow need to understand that they have a shared responsibility for outcomes. So that's a very compelling paradigm, and uh, that's why we're here together talking about it. In the world that we're in now, just current events, Take this paradigm and apply it to a current situation that you think is troubling and is a crossroads moment for how we should be applying leadership. Sure. When I, when I look at the films of the migrant caravans that are coming toward the United States, it's a really interesting moment. It's a practical problem. We have challenges with our immigration laws and we have disagreements and we need to sort those out. But this is coming faster than that reform will occur. It's a group of between five and 14,000 people desperate to leave their homes coming to the United States or trying to. The United States must protect its sovereignty, must control its borders, as all countries must, and we must do that equitably. But we've also got a near-term challenge that we'll either get wrong or we'll get right. And we should think about it. We should think about what right would look like. Now, we could build a wall. We could put troops on the border. We could shoot them when they get close. We could do any number of things to keep them out. But I don't think we're going to be very happy with the optic or the feel of that associated with our uh, values. I think it's time for our leaders to help us decide what right is like for us. To decide, okay, America, these are our values. This is how we process. These are our practical responsibilities. But here's how we mate those with how we want to be viewed in the world and how we want to view ourselves, most importantly. You know, back in 1932, the group of people who were veterans of the First World War had been promised bonuses for their service in that war. They needed it during the Depression early. So they came to the United, down to Washington, D.C., and they did a big campsite, like 25,000 people. And they established a campsite, and they asked for early payment. They were there months. Congress eventually voted not to give them the money early, And after a period of disagreement with that, President Hoover ordered the United States Army to disperse them, to drive them out of the Capitol. In uniform, United States Army troops under Douglas MacArthur came out with tear gas and bayonets and forced out the bonus marchers, veterans, fellow Americans. Think of the optic. Think how the soldiers felt. I mean, that could be them in 10 years. And we create a moment that we're embarrassed about now that doesn't mesh with our values, Hmm. and we have to live with it for generations. Well, in effect, that cost Hoover the White House, and Roosevelt got elected. It it sounds to me that what we're getting at here is that a myth is not just what a leader tells uh, followers. A myth is what a nation tells itself and others about its role in the world. And what I hear strongly is we need to be very clear about what our myth is if we expect the rest of the world to respect us. That's right. And what we want from our most senior leaders is to help us in that journey, to help clarify that for us. Because nations and populations can get inflamed about something or confused or ill-informed, the leaders should say, no, okay, 
This is the issue. This is the clarity. These are the realities of it. Here are our values. Now, we as a nation should live those values. They should pull us up. When the, the senior leadership in America talks, we should stand taller. If we're angered, they should calm us down. If we're too complacent, they should energize us. If we're frightened, they should make us feel better. But they should not let us abrogate our responsibilities. Senior leaders should make us better Americans. So effectively, as we conclude our conversation together, your book, Leaders, and your work is a call to action that organized society, leading our society, is a collective enterprise. And anybody who tells you that it's top down is just sadly mistaken. That's exactly right. Without us, leaders have no position. But without leaders, we're not as good as we can be. What's next after you finish promoting this book, Stan? That's a great question. I, we're talking about another book, but I've got that fatigue in my eyes when I think about it. So we might take a look at the same idea of leaders with teams and see what make teams work. Well, one thing I know for sure is that whatever you do, you're going to lead. And uh, for that, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I'm sure that everybody listening also learned from our conversation. It's been my honor. Thank you. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. So you think you need or want an angel investor for your business. The first question you should always ask yourself is why? Do you really need the money or is it more that you need a sounding board or both? Understand that most angel investors invest for both financial and non-financial reasons and really come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes. Some angels are focused on leveraging their industry experience. Some angels are looking for something more personal. Perhaps you remind them of themselves when they were your age, or the son or daughter that they never had, or wish that they had had. Understand that when you go to pitch an angel who already is substantially wealthy, your opening line should not be, invest in me, I'll make you rich. Well, son, I'm already rich. So once you get past the dating aspect of finding your angel. The next thing is how will the deal be structured? They're going to expect participation in the upside, protection on the downside, and probably some form of anti-dilution protection for future rounds. How much control will they have? How much control do you expect them to have? How much assistance can they provide? How, what are your expectations as to their availability? These are all questions that would manifest themselves essentially in the angel investor term sheet. The term sheets will not be as oppressive as a classic venture capital term sheet, but don't expect the angel to be completely relaxed about the types of communication or report or controls that they're going to have. Ultimately, these are sophisticated people and sophisticated investors, and they're going to want to know that you're in it with them for the long term in a mutually beneficial relationship. So does your business need an angel? Well, it makes sense to dip your toe in the water, see who's out there, and structure a deal that works for both of you. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 